the axe of the blood god. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey, and this is the official GDC episode. Yes, this is actually happening, despite my concerns that it wasn't going to happen. And this is special in more ways than one, because I am actually sitting in the same room as Steve Tramer. This is crazy. We're sitting in my house with the microphone. This is amazing. We're not over Skype. I know. It's awesome. It's so great. There's a cat. There's a cat in here. He's sitting on my lap. We got a couple of beers. We just had some amazing sushi. And we have just finished, I guess it would be day one of uh, GDC, maybe. It's kind of like unclear. Ish, yeah. So like, I mean, Monday, Tuesday, Tuesday's the big announcement day. Floor opens on Wednesday, which is when I'm going to get to go in finally. Mm. But... Yeah, I mean, like, it sounds like most of the press conferences and stuff were today instead of yesterday. So, I there's been some news, I've seen some things, some of them RPG-related, but maybe we should hit up the RPG news this week, because there's been a bit. And maybe we should start with I Am Setsuna, which is a Tokyo RPG factory game. Um, are you familiar with this one? No, I haven't heard about it before. Okay, so I Am Setsuna is basically a throwback to Chrono Trigger. Oh, okay. All right, so I got your attention, right? Yeah. So the way it works is Tokyo RPG Factory was announced last year at E3. It's a RPG-focused studio, and it's basically its sole job is to create RPG JRPGs based like kind of a 90s vibe. Mm -hmm. I asked them... Is this, like, kind of come from um, Bravely Default? Was that, like, the genesis of it all? And they were like, no, that didn't have anything to do with it. Actually, we were looking at Western developers and the fact that they were making these JRPGs. And our first thought was, well, hell, uh, if West- if people love these, JR- these classic JRPGs, we should be making them. Yeah. Is it, is it, like, a studio of all new talent, or does it have people like industry luminaries there established people um the director of i am setsuna um worked on final fantasy explorers when did that come out was that one of the more recent ones yeah within the past year yeah Um, i don't think that i caught that one i i it's not like we have people in there who like worked on final fantasy 6 but those people are all long gone by now they grew up with they grew up with I Am Setsuna and that kind of, or not I Am Setsuna. They grew up with Final Fantasy VI and these '90s RPGs, and that's what they're kind of hoping to recreate. Yes, like Super Nintendo era. Yes, so I Am Setsuna like specifically in the SquareSoft sort of vibe. Definitely. Okay. Uh, so I Am Setsuna was it's out in Japan now. Oh. Yeah, um, and wow. it was revealed in a stream for North American release, given a North American title just the other day. Um, they chose the name I Am Setsuna, mm-hmm. which, okay. Um, big, kind of the big controversy, uh, a Vita version was released in Japan and will not be released here in the U.S. Well, nobody in the U.S. owns a Vita. <laughs> oh, come on. Well, I, I mean, got you, one sitting in there. 
Well, yeah, I know. There. Well, I was talking with people about this the other day at the very event that we're both here for. Mm. Um, and we were discussing, like, how many people actually own a Vita. And the the guys that I was with, they admitted that they'd never seen more than one at any one time. Mm. So we started conjecturing that maybe there's only one Vita in the entire world. <laughs> and it just happens to be in, in the hands of whoever is currently using it. Um, well, mine's like uh, the one Vita is just like sitting just around the corner. Then. Yeah, I know. But um, no, that's so. Is it Vita and PS4? Then is that what they're releasing it on, or is it Vita and PC? In Japan, it was PS4 and Vita. Okay, so when it comes over here, it'll probably be PS4, and maybe they'll do a PC port. They have announced a Steam port. Okay, which Did, makes perfect sense. Yeah, it does. Are, have they announced um, anybody who's localizing it, or are they doing it themselves? You know, I'm not actually sure. Okay. That'd probably be the most interesting thing. Like, I'm wondering why they didn't announce who's localizing it for them. But if they're releasing it themselves, it must be... They might be doing it in-house. They must be doing it in-house. Otherwise, they would have announced a partnership with, like, 8.4 or Xseed or somebody. Well, 8.4 usually falls... 8.4 usually kind of flies under the radar in terms of uh, localization deals. Do they? Yeah, like, at the end of the day, you know that they're working on these games, Mm -hmm. like Xenoblade, Chronicles, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Actually, I think 8.4 might still be recovering from Xenoblade Chronicles. Was that a bad one for them? It was just, like, the most challenging one, right? Because it was such a huge game. game. It was a giant game. So, I I can't, uh, that's just pure speculation on my part, but I don't know if they necessarily had the time to do Project Setsuna. No, it sounds like they're doing it in-house. That's cool, too. Like, if they're... Are they assembling... um, Yeah, I wonder what that's going to end up looking like, then, with the the eventual localization we get, if they're doing it in-house. Hopefully they're assembling a good team to do it. This could be really cool. I hope that it's whimsical. Does it seem like it's whimsical? I mean, like, you obviously know more, way more about it than I do. If it sounds like it's in the mold of Chrono Trigger, is it... In that mold based on, like, the mechanics or the kind of story that it has? Or, I mean, do you even know? Well, Are you even... I have seen some of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I met the director today and recorded an interview. And um, I'm not sure if this interview will be going into this episode or if it'll be going into the next episode. That's, like, kind of, like, the impromptu nature of this RPG podcast sometimes. Yeah. Um, but, no, I met him... And the present, the the actual appointment consisted of getting a, a kind of a very basic, almost PowerPoint like slide things, being like, "This is what the game is. Like, here's what we're focusing on. We're focusing on this very like old school RPG kind of thing um, that's specifically kind of based on Chrono Trigger. Mm-hmm. So, like, the way you enter into a battle, Chrono Trigger." The way, like, the moves can combine Chrono Trigger. Um, The customization will, quote, be very similar to one Final Fantasy, but we're not going to say which one. Okay, great. That could be, like... A million different things? Yeah, I know. You've got 14 Final Fantasies, so... Well, I mean... Discounting the MMOs, 12 of them, you've got 12 different systems to choose from. Well, if you think about it, it's like... There's the Final Fantasy IV version of just leveling up and getting skills. There's yeah. the job system. Job system. There's materia, materia or the espers. Esper system. There's draw. 
Man. Wouldn't that be so funny? That would be so awesome. I would kill for a Chrono Trigger inspired game with the draw system. The funny... Okay, I love Final Fantasy VIII, but the draw system was not that good. You could make it good, though, in the right type of game. How so? I Like, so, I th- I've actually thought a lot about this while I was playing Final Fantasy VIII, which is that the reason the draw mechanic doesn't really, like, work is that there's no disincentive for just sitting there and slamming draw for, you know, 30 minutes and then stocking up and moving on and you're a powerful badass. Mm. Um, And in fact, that's almost the way the game is designed to be played, which is a little weird. So there are probably ways to... Yeah, there are probably ways to balance it out a little bit better, like limited limited numbers of draws or, like making it a little more asymptotic where like after you draw past a certain point, like there's not really a huge benefit to it anymore. The funny thing about Final Fantasy VIII, and this is like slightly off the rails, but whatever, um, is that like most aspects of Final Fantasy VIII, it's not as bad as it initially looks, which is to say that if you spend like X amount of time stocking up on, 100 fires, 100 thunders, and 100 ices, you're doing it wrong. Yeah, when I did play it, I remember it was infuriating to my girlfriend who was watching me and loves Final Fantasy VIII that I wasn't drawing up to 100 immediately. Like, whenever I encountered a new spell. I just, I'd draw until I got bored of it, which was normally, like, maybe 20, somewhere between 20 and 30, and I'd move on. Precisely. It It was infuriating to her. You would do that, and then there was a point in the garden where you would get cards or you you would get something that could be refined into higher level spells. I did a lot of refining. Like Kiragas. Yeah. And all of a sudden you would jump up to like more than a thousand HP, which yeah. was a lot for disc one. And then you're kind of off to the races. Yeah, and then there's if, so many interesting and fun ways to play and break that game. Well, yeah. I mean, it's a case of if you level up to the right point, then you can... Inf- encounter like the t-rex monster in the garden that's loose and you can draw earthquakes i think or quakes you could draw quake very early and quake is really strong yeah junctioning quake to like a a strength or a magic stat is makes you unstoppable for most of the first disc yeah you can basically one shot cipher cipher i don't know cipher i'm gonna go with cipher okay Uh, it sounds good sounds good yeah you could basically one shot cipher Anyway, so I digress. Yeah, as we so often do. Um, This game sounds cool. I'll be keeping an eye on it. I imagine that we're going to be hearing more about it as they go through the localization process. I mean, if if they had a meeting with you today and you said that it came out recently. It came out like last month in Japan. It came out last month. Probably, if they're doing it all in-house, probably like six to eight months, maybe. Depending Mm -hmm. on the amount of work to do for it. Mm Mm-hmm. So I guess look forward. I guess we'll look forward to that towards the end of the year. Oh man, it would be so cruel if it came out around the same time as Persona Five and just got crushed. It's coming out in summer. Oh really? Persona yeah, Five for this. I am Setsuna. So, oh really? They've actually set a date for it. That's my recollection. Is that it's coming out in the summer? Unless I'm crazy, I'm pretty sure it's coming out this summer. Well, whenever you splice in the interview, hopefully we'll find out. Exactly. <laughs> Please, like, don't take this as gospel that is coming out this summer, but I remember looking at that date when right. I was... Stay tuned to this very podcast for exactly. further details on when this game may or may not be coming out. <laughs> exactly. But I really liked 
Okay, so I like the music. It's super chill piano music, especially when you're like on the overworld. I am mm-hmm. totally down for super chill piano music. That's why Pokemon Diamond and Pearl has my favorite soundtrack. Lots of super chill piano music when you're in the overworld. Um, it has that kind of nice, whimsical, almost Dragon Quest vibe. Uh, the the director, um, Atsushi Hashimoto, uh, referenced so- the Saga series. Like, he name-checked the Saga series really? when talking about influences, right? So oh, I'm like, okay, weird. so this is immediately interesting. Yeah, this could be a very strange and interesting game. It the graphics are okay. Um, it's kind of a stylized 2.5D look. Mm-hmm. So not not quite like the authentic right. bit kind of look, but the sort of fudging of it that you sometimes yeah. see. Yeah. Okay. Which I think that maybe I would have preferred the traditional kind of sprite art, but they whatever. So, and then I like that it's going to be on uh, the PlayStation 4. Yeah, it's going to be pretty cool. I mean, like, if they did decide to bring over the Vita port, then good for them. Mm. But I mean, at the very least, I can't imagine it not being a remote play title. Oh, no, it totally will be. Yeah. So, I mean, you could play it on your Vita anyway. (laughs) Exactly. It'll be interesting to see how it's ultimately received. Because it's not like there's any shortage of old school JRPGs kind of around. And I would even say that it's kind of directly competing with newer stuff like Persona. Like you said, yeah. wouldn't it be sad if Persona 5 like crushed it? Well, Atlas is kind of the king of like old school JRPG at this point. Yeah. Well, also it's sort of like in... When I said that, I'm thinking about... There's kind of only really space for one really big JRPG or even just one JRPG kind of in the public consciousness at any time. Hmm. And as soon as Persona 5 hits, it's just going to dominate that discussion for the rest of the year. Yeah. Um, this game really sounds interesting, though. I'm, I think it's kind of cool that they're sort of taking a track to it, like I, I guess a lot of Western developers have been doing with like revising isometric games and stuff like that over the last five years mm-hmm. um, where it's just a throwback style to a game that we haven't really seen before or, any, or haven't seen in a long time. I guess the primary difference here is that in the West, most of those games are being made by the people who made the originals. And it sounds like this is sort of the next generation of people who were inspired by those originals, making Iron Setsuna, which to me is actually way more interesting. Like I would rather see people take, take these concepts that they kind of grew up with and then run with them. Um, I mean, I love stuff that that's been coming out of like the Kickstarter scene for the Western isometric things, but it's just naturally more interesting to have new talent coming in and doing their own thing. Mm. Even if it's inspired, even if it's heavily inspired by like games they played when they were kids. And it, yeah, I mean, there's some really good RPGs like, um, I would say, like, Cthulhu Saves the World is a great send-up of the old JRPG, like, kind of style. Yeah, I enjoyed Cthulhu Saves the World when I played it. That was a while ago. But yeah. I, I do remember liking it a lot more than most other, like, JRPG, like, American-style JRPGs, which is a super weird thing to say. But, like, there is sort of that weird kind of RPG maker subculture where it's a JRPG, but it doesn't quite feel like one. Right. You know what feels the closest to being kind of a JRPG that I've played recently? 
What? Stardew Valley. Yeah, I've been hearing a lot about Stardew Valley. Like, the graphics can be a little bit of a turnoff. Um, a turnoff? I think they look great. Uh, my girlfriend's reaction to it was the opposite. Like, she's no a huge Harvest Moon nut. And she I mean, it looks down, like Chrono Trigger. She just wasn't into it. Like, mm. I'm, I'm fine with the graphics. I don't think they really get in the way of anything. I don't think they're super great either, but... No, I think they're really charming. Like, Sturdy Valley is a game that I know... It's one of those games where I know if I sat down with it, I would be sitting down with it for an extended period of time. Just the reactions and the portraits and the the look of the characters screams to me um, late 90s RPG, maybe on the Super Nintendo or oh, early yeah. PlayStation. So like the the uh, in a sort of interstitial art stuff like that. Yeah, 100%. That stuff looks great. Like the sprite work on it is a little... It's kind of, it looks a little cramped. Like mm-hmm. maybe it doesn't when you're playing it in full resolution or whatever, but in like those preview videos that I saw on Steam, it didn't... Like it didn't look amazing or anything. So, but to your point, to your earlier point, yeah, I think you're right in the sense that you have um, maybe hobbyists or people who grew up with these games that they really enjoyed. But to your earlier point, I do feel like there's kind of a hobbyist scene uh, that is sort of, you're right, like aping maybe the conventions that they saw and they enjoyed growing up without really under, maybe necessarily understanding them or, or how they came about culturally. Yeah. So I think in this case, it's mostly like a cultural context thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and also it's just, it's a, it takes a really unique kind of talent to be able to, to synthesize all of those influences into something kind of new and unique. And like, I mean, obviously you can't really know a hundred percent if I am set. So that's going to be that kind of thing, but mm-hmm. it will at least be really interesting to see what, happens with it so it's definitely something that i'm curious about i'm glad that that you heard about it and that it's on the radar now so let's move back on to the western side of the equation um today obsidian announced that they are developing tyranny which is their new rpg isometric rpg um totally new ip but still in that kind of traditional approach and they're being published by Paradox, interestingly enough. And they're working in direct conjunction with them. What are your thoughts on this? So, like, the Parad- well, the Paradox thing makes perfect sense to me. Like, Paradox is branching out from the grand strategy thing, and City Skylines was, like, actually a really big hit for them. City Skylines was an excellent game. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like they're kind of, like, just from a... So don't talk about this on podcast, but... <laughs> Paradox is, like, really branching out into other markets and they're finding really good people to partner with to do it, to kind of cover these other niche areas outside of grand strategy that are sort of underserved or have been only really served by Kickstarter stuff. I just want to make an observation really quickly. Yeah. City skyline, Sim city, the Sim city reboot from a couple of years back. It's awful. It was terrible. It should have been city skylines. Absolutely. Well, I mean like that's what, that's why city skylines has, a chance to exist, right? I'm sure that EA so, doesn't give a damn, but anybody who, maybe somebody who worked on that game, maybe look, they look at City Skyline, they're just kicking themselves over and over and over again. There were all kinds of stories when City Skylines came out, like, because it was around, it was not that long after Maxis closed. Like, there were the, there's that former designer from Maxis who was, uh, basically their job was through Patreon, making money, designing new assets for City Skylines, mm. like, which was, really cool 
Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's neither here nor there because so the the paradox thing makes sense to me and like I think it's really interesting that Obsidian is kind of branching out and doing their own new thing because they haven't really been doing that very much. Because um, I mean the last. Like, the last thing that they put out before they went whole hog on the Kickstarter train was um, was New Vegas, right? No, they put out Stick of Truth. The South oh, that's Park right. They did, they did work on Stick of Truth. And South Park was kind of a problem for them because they, if I recall correctly, they went kind of over time. Yeah, I remember, I remember this. This is what almost destroyed their the studio was they, like, went over time and over budget. And when the game came out, it underperformed compared to what they were thinking it would do yeah, it was kind of a problem, which is why, like, as a last-ditch effort, they went back to the drawing board yeah. and went to the Kickstarter thing. The Kickstarter thing. Which kind of proved to be the right move for them, I think. No, it was totally the right move. I mean, it's allowed them to recoup and, like, kind of build up their talent again. And the games that they've released have been really cool. Um, I'm really excited for Torment when that comes out. Oh, yeah, that'll be great. Yeah, that's not awesome. from Obsidian. Though. Oh, no, that's from In Exile. Right? Yeah, I mean... For frankly, like, I mean, the same roots, right? Because Planescape came out of um, yeah, it also came out of Black, Black Isle, so which is why I got them confused. Exactly, because it's it's those are the two companies that came out of Black Isle that have both been creating these isometric RPGs based off of old just recently from Kickstarter. Um, but no, I think it's cool that they're going to be doing something new, but with this classic style i mean it's like the same kind of thing as just talking about um i'm satsuma just a moment ago right like they're it sounds like they're getting new design staff to make this game that is based off a lot of these classic ideas that they're old that the old isometric stuff was based off of but with like kind of this the new twist to it like i do think the high concept of the game is super cool like it's a really good starting basis for where they for where they want to go with it well if i am setsuna and pillars of eternity and tyranny prove anything it's that the nichification of the internet it goes double for video games where you can carve yourself out a really nice and solid niche in the rpg market making a super hardcore game that appeals to a group of people who will spend all the money they need to get the game they want. Yeah, well, I mean, that's why Kickstarter has been such a success for them, right? Like, mm. you are selling directly to the audience that wants these things. And not only that, that they can deliver. Proven, yeah, and that audience has proven again and again that they want this stuff and that they love the things that are being made. So why not make a new one that will sell to probably the exact same audience? Maybe go a little bit beyond it. And see where it takes them. I mean, because the other thing is they can only kickstart stuff based off of old properties that they own or that they, like, have the original creators for for so long. Like, sooner or later, they've got to start making new stuff. This is, and, well, this I mean, is a this new is IP. It. Yeah, this is it. Pillars of Eternity is a new IP, too. I thought Pillars was based off of and something nope, else that they Nope, it's not D&D. Huh? It's their own thing. It just has a modified version of the D&D system. It just mm. looks D&D. Okay. Yeah, that was one of those things that I was never... Like, I didn't follow the Pillars thing, like, super closely after after the Kickstarter mm. ended. That's, could... that's still a shameful blind spot in my recent game-playing history. Mm. We don't know a ton about it so far, but we do know the premise. And I do kind of like the premise. Yeah. Which is, 
Evil One. Yep. <laughs> Hence the name. So instead of instead of like kind of doing the Star Wars thing where you're like the farm boy going to blow up the Death Star, I, I guess you work for an evil emperor. It sort of sounds like based on the materials that they put out and kind of have like the high level over, it sounds like you're almost middle management for the yeah. evil overlord too. Like you're the dude who runs around and solves problems that they cause. Yeah, I mean, I'm totally down with that. Yeah, no, I think it's a great idea. And there's been a, like, there have been some really good games that have come out of philosophies like that, like Evil Genius and some of the Dungeon Master stuff. Dungeon Keeper. Dungeon Keeper, yeah. That's what I was thinking of. Like, those games are super cool and awesome, and it's because they get to start with this premise of, what if you are the bad guy? And it's something that a lot of games don't do, and why not? It's a... Especially for a game like this, where it sounds it sounds like it's going to be focused really heavily on the choices that you make and who you align with during a playthrough. Like, the fact that you start off as somebody in service to, like, the Dark Lord who's already conquered the whole world maybe makes those choices more interesting and more impactful in ways that would be exciting or unique. Instead of, I align with this faction and we go overthrow the bad guy at the very end and then I get, you know, ending A or ending B deciding based on who I chose. It sounds like they're trying to do something more interesting than that. Yeah, like maybe the factions all have different agendas and that kind of thing. Kind of like Game of Thrones. Yeah, based on the sort of materials they put out, it sounds like there's, like, the fa- it sounds like there's in- internal power struggle is like one of the big things that they're going for is that now that the world has been conquered, there's like a, just a bunch of factions inside the Empire fighting to control their own fiefdoms, basically. And then it seems like it's who you align with as you go through the game impacts sort of the areas that you wander through and the sort of characters that you meet in the dialogue and all that stuff. And I'm sure that, yeah, it'll impact the endings and things, but it sounds like they're trying to do way more interesting stuff than just... Are you Paragon or Renegade, right? Which is I normally sure what those so. choices boil down to. Are you a Renegon? <laughs> I was. I tried to be a Renegon and got punished. Well, because that's the other thing, right? Is normally in systems, in games that really tout, like choose which faction you align with. It's either hundred percent A or hundred percent B, and anything down the middle it gives you like a really milk toast kind of boring experience. Yeah. Or is unsatisfying in a lot of ways. It seems like they're trying to resolve that problem, too, by, first of all, making there be so many options, and then also by making each of the choices you make with regard to those options, like, a little more interesting, even if it's just a minor effect on the world. I really hope that they follow through with this whole, you're actually going to be able to change the world kind of thing. Yeah, that'll be really interesting. I think that that's, honestly, I've got to say that after so many years of playing games where it's you make the big moral choices that impact the whole world or whatever, but you don't ever really see that through playing the game. You kind of just see that at the end, at specific end points hmm. of the storyline. It'll be way more interesting to be like, okay, well, I align with these guys who want to sack this other town, and then when you go there, it's totally destroyed or whatever. Like, that's... Yeah. It's more interesting, and it opens it up for multiple playthroughs. Well, it's like Which Fallout is, 3, like the kind of the Ur example of that is um, 
Where you blew up, uh, what was it, Megaton? Yeah, whether you blew up Megaton or not. Yeah, I mean, that's cool. It is really cool, but also it's a choice that, it's like literally a binary choice of, do I no longer have this thing on the map, or do I leave it there? But it has lasting consequences. Yeah, it has lasting consequences, and those lasting consequences can be pretty brutal. <laughs> exactly, because you're like cutting off like whole quest lines just by taking that one action. Now, this will be really interesting, and I think this is where Paradox actually comes into it, because Paradox is a grand strategy studio. Um, they're the ones who are responsible for like Europa Universalis and that kind of thing. And they have shown that they're really good at that kind of like sort of nonlinear thinking, I suppose you would say. Yeah, I don't know what kind of role they're taking as producer and publisher, but I imagine that they'll be giving lots of feedback about yeah, that's what I'm guessing. I'm guessing that they'll let Obsidian do their thing. And then they'll be like, oh, have you considered this? Yeah, I mean, like, at this point, it's... I'm guessing what Paradox's role is going to be beyond just giving them distribution is total spitballing. But, like, hopefully they are going to be giving them some feedback about, like, the massively branching narrative stuff. Mm. Did you actually play Pillars of Eternity? No, Pillars of Eternity is something that... That's, like I said, it's still a blind spot. Like, Pillars and Wasteland, too. Because mm. it's... It comes down to that thing where I'm an adult with a job. Stop it. Right. And Go back time, to your mom's basement. Yeah, well, well, I didn't have a basement, but I did have a room with heavy curtains that completely blocked out the sun. <laughs> um, so, yeah, like, I could spend, you know, 60 hours on those games, or I can plow through, like, three or four, six hours. Mm. No, that makes perfect sense. I mean, I personally am the kind of person where if I were not in the games industry, I know boohoo, blah, 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 I would probably just sit down for like six months and focus on one RPG. Yeah, I, well, I mean, that's the different ways to do it when your gaming time is limited is you can either go through the buffet, like I kind of do, sampling a little bit of everything, or you can just sit down and you have like the really nice nine course meal. Exactly. I like the nine-course meal. Yeah, sometimes I can get into that, but... Mm, you know, also, those kinds of game, like games like Pillars can be really dangerous for me, too, because... Um, you might disappear. No, I do disappear. <laughs> I still remember the time that I sat down to play Torment, um, mm -hmm. and it was like, okay, I'm going to sit down, you know, like, it's kind of, it's like a Saturday or whatever, and I sit down, and I start playing it, and I go through the morgue, and I'm about to leave the morgue, and I'm like, I think that I've done everything I could possibly do in here. And I checked the clock, and it took me about five and a half hours to go through just the intro area of that game. Jeez. Because I wanted to do everything in it and look at everything and find all the stuff. And at that point, I turned it off and never played it again because I knew that I would sink like 120 hours of my life into it. I have had reviews where I am reviewing the game. Uh, I think Civ Five did this to me, um, and a few other games, uh, where I will literally be up until like two in the morning because I get one more turn itis yep, really hard. Oh, and it's the worst slash best feeling. Well, I mean, it's got to be great when you're reviewing because it means that you're really getting into it and loving it. But it's also got to be really bad when you're reviewing because you actually have deadlines to write your review by and you also probably want to sleep. That and also, it's not the only thing I'm working on at any given time. That is also so, true. You have other assignments beyond the game that you want to actually play. Exactly. So I'll be like, 
I really have to write this article. Writing, writing, writing. Oh, but I really want to see what happens on the next turn with this game. Yeah. yeah. Well, they said that, it, I believe they said it's coming out in 2016. So. Really? Yeah. So, wow. I wonder how long they've been working on it then that they're able to release it this year. Well, well it could be that they've not actually been working on it that long, but they have the established tech. And oh, that's they true. If it's have, running on the if it's running on the pillars engine, yeah, it's yeah. totally running on the pillars engine. Mm. So they got the established tech, which they built with pillars, and they have a bunch of veteran designers who really know their way around an isometric RPG. Mm-hmm. And they're like, okay, well, we have this kind of interesting concept, um, but otherwise, like, we basically know what has to be done. They've probably been working on it since like last year, maybe twenty fourteen even. Yeah, it's probably like, I don't know what they're, I keep trying to remember whether it's them or In Exile that does the pre-production system where as they're finishing up the development of a title, they start doing all of the writing and concept art and some of the background stuff for the next game and prototype it in the existing engine. Mm. Um, I think actually both Obsidian and In Exile may operate that way right now because it's a good strategy for studios that operate on the model that they do. And it makes Which sense. would explain why this game would be able to come out so soon. Probably it was in pre-production for a really long time. Yeah, and it makes sense given that these games are really big, they're really long, and yeah. they want to be able to pack in as much as possible. You know, I would actually be really surprised and delighted if Tyranny is like a 10 or 15 hour game that they just want you to play like 7 or 8 times. Well, I would be really interested in that. That'd be fun. No, I would actually really love that because it would be a game that I would probably play at least twice. It's not really their MO, though. No, it's not their MO. But be, given given how strongly they're emphasizing the replayability stuff, I'm like I have to wonder and hope. And I mean, you know, we're not going to find out until it actually comes out and people sit down and start playing it and see how long it takes. But in the meantime, you should play Pillars of Eternity. I probably should. I need something new to play now that I've exhausted XCOM. Oh, did you finish it? I finished it uh, last month, yeah. Oh, so this is tangent, tangentially okay. RPG related. What'd you think? I loved it. Yeah? I loved it a lot. So, did eventually... you like the end? Oh, man. Okay, so like the final mission and the lead up to the final mission, I loved it. I thought it was mm. a, it's a perfect capstone to that game. Mm. The ending cinematic, which I guess this is like maybe a little spoilery, but whatever, that it sets up Terror from the Deep, mm. like or a Terror from the oh, Deep ask yeah. game. I forgot about that. I am less than enthused about that. <laughs> I mean, does it set up Terror from the Deep though? I mean, just because it's under the ocean. It's it, it basically if you know like the the history of the XCOM series and you see that cutscene at the very end, your immediate thought is, oh, they're gonna do Terror from the Deep next. Okay. And I was really afraid that XCOM 2 was going to be Terror from the Deep to begin with. So. But it wasn't. And it was but it awesome. wasn't, and it's awesome. <laughs> okay, so this is what I'm going to say. I loved every, pretty much everything about that game leading up to... I, I forget what I ultimately gave it. Um, I think maybe 4.5. You gave it a really good score. I do remember that. Um, I liked the second to last mission. It was intense. It was cool. Oh, was on the idea. tower where you yeah. get to spoiler alert. Turn off the relay. Yeah, spoiler yeah. alert. I didn't like this the final mission. I like the final mission because it's a good. It was a good capstone, and also like 
I kind of enjoyed taking my side soldiers and just decimating everything. It was just wave after wave, though. So I didn't have the problem that you did. I remember we, we talked about this a little bit when you told me about the final mission before. And I think that the big difference was I went in there with not just the Psy characters that the game gives you for the final mission, but also like two fully trained Psy operatives. I and have a, one. And a fully upgraded um, specialist. Okay. So I was just rampaging through the whole level, controlling robots. And uh, most importantly, I was able to mind control the gatekeeper that shows up on that level permanently. Nice. And if I hadn't been able to do that, it would have been way more of a slog. Okay, so I had, like, two snipers. I had a psyops person. I had the main character that they give you. I had a grenadier. And I had a ranger. Mm -hmm. And what I ended up doing was, like, setting up shop outside the final area. And, like, enemies just kept pouring in. Drawing guys out. Pouring in, pouring in. And so I was drawing them out piecemeal. But I also mind-controlled on one of the Archons, or is that what they called? Oh, one of the flying guys? The flying guys? Yeah, Archons. I actually managed to get off, like, three or four shots of that needle attack Oh, Blazing Pinion? Blazing Pinion. that thing is so good. Against bad, against enemies. But anyway, it was like I was mowing down enemies as they were coming at me. Mm -hmm. But the, the final kind of enemies... Like, the most powerful enemies were a real pain in the butt. Because it became a matter of, first of all, just hitting them is really hard. Yeah, it was, I found that the final mission, like, I think it really... And you gotta kill three of them. Yeah, it boils down to, did you come in with guys with the right mix of skills? And, and I happened to come in with guys with the right mix of skills. I managed to take them out, but I couldn't take them out in one turn. And oh, if they... It took me a long time to take them out. Yeah, exactly. I had to reload s- several times because it, what it really came down to was, where did they beam? Yeah, interestingly, I don't think... I think I had to reload... I did a reload maybe once during that segment of, mm-hmm. the, of the fight. But it was mostly just attrition. Like, mm-hmm. it, it was satisfying. It was attrition. In, it yeah. was satisfying kind of attrition, but I can definitely understand. And no final boss. Yeah, no final boss. Which is which, weird. I was like, oh, that's it? Yeah. Well, I mean, like, the three... the three. I mean, they're a final boss, yeah, they're, but they're it's a, not... They're a final boss, but you've also fought one of them before. Exactly. So. Yeah. Yeah. But, no, I'm excited to see what the, uh, what the DLC that they're going to offer for that game will be. It'll be awesome. It looks like... I really enjoyed it, and then, like, I queued up uh, an Iron Man game, like, almost right after I finished it. Nice. It's um, RPG-ish... Because there are skill trees. There are skill trees, and there's also so much customization. And I cannot wait until I've, like, I've decided during my Iron Man game that I'm going to pick out the first person who I train as a PSYOP. I'm just going to give them, like, big dumb shades and a fedora, and I'm probably going to give them, like, the call sign vape or something like that. But, yeah, I'm and also playing through it, once playing through to get on Iron Man, it's actually like not anywhere close to as difficult. No, because you the kind first of game. you kind of know what to expect and yeah. how to how to counter the alien strategies to the point where all the way up through my first retaliation mission, everything had been flawless. Nice. So yeah, it's I mean it's really satisfying to play the game that way too. But I think that even more than Enemy Unknown, it it desperately needs an expansion. 
past, like, the first full campaign, which is still, like, 40 hours. I got a lot of play out of that game. Me too. No, I... XCOM 2 was one of those, I played this game until, like, I would be up at 2 in the morning playing this yep. game kind of thing. I definitely had one more turn with XCOM 2. It is it is a brilliantly designed game. Oh, no, it's so great. I, I mean, I was complaining about the final mission, but at the end of the day, I feel like that's actually kind of a minor complaint. It is a really minor complaint. The, so the one thing that I do wish that they'd done more of was the the mission right before the final mission. They let you spend intel to get those mission bonuses. This is what I'm going to say about the second to last mission. Yeah. You only get three characters for that one. Unless you spend the intel to get a fourth one. Do you? You can spend intel to bring a fourth fourth character with you. I, I can't remember. I, I remember that there was one of the intel bonuses was like... There's a vision in... There's a there's, there's a, the one where you, like, start out in stealth. Yeah, there's a concealment. But there's individual concealment. There and was there's the vision site, radius. Which I took. I took squad Yeah, site. I took that. Actually, I had enough intel to take all three. And mm-hmm. then there was another one, which is have a fourth person go on the mission. Okay. But, like, that mission was But you feel cool. like you had your crack team, like, yes. going in and just messing stuff and that, up. That was what I loved. Because you send mission. in your like max level team going yeah. crazy. You send in your very best guys, and because of the way the level is set up, and if you have like individual concealment, you can do stuff like, oh, I've positioned my sniper to just take pot shots at these guys, and I'm just going to run my assault straight all the way up to, or a uh, ranger now. I'm going to run them all the way up to the console at the end of the level and complete it. And like, that's so satisfying to do. Oh, it was so great. It felt so good. I love that mission, and I wish that it had more more like it in that game. Somebody made an interesting, like, kind of a wish list thing that I found kind of interesting. It would be an interesting mod. Yeah. So you know how... Oh, it might have been Tom Francis, actually. Um, uh, he used to work for PC Gamer. Yeah. He wrote the... the dev- he wrote the diaries for Gal- Galactic Civilizations 2. Mm-hmm. Some of the Best and most hilarious game journalism I've ever read, actually. So you should go check them out. They're really terrific and still hold up today. But um, he observed that there's a problem with XCOM 2 where you your characters get too strong. Yes. And you just end up sticking with the same characters. Um, and I don't know if it was his idea or if somebody else came up with it, but... You know how there's wanted posters around yeah. town that, like, as you use certain characters a lot, they start to appear on these wanted posters, yep. which is kind of neat. I thought that was really cool. I loved that the first time I noticed it. It would be interesting if there were missions where you had to, you couldn't use your most wanted characters because you needed to be surreptitious. Oh, that actually would be interesting. Or you could use your most wanted characters, but it wouldn't grant you concealment or something like that. Yeah. So uh, just to encourage you to use a greater array of to characters. To kind of trade it up a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, Iron, just Iron by... Man does that a little bit because the the opening of the game is so unforgiving. Yeah. But yeah, in a regular playthrough, there's never a disincentive to using your most powerful guys that can just wipe everything out. I mean, sometimes like two, they would be hurt. Two snipers with kill zone, and you can kind of overlap it a little bit, that takes out like any... That can take out a group of, like, six guys if you have the right mods on their weapons. 
All right, so this is the last thing I'll say about XCOM 2. Do you know what happened to my my character that I created based on myself? How badly did she die? Okay, she totally died. Like, she was injured most of the time. She was a grenadier, so she was constantly injured. And I think she was, she had just come off a, like, stint of being gravely injured, so she had been gone for, like, a month. Uh-huh. And she finally comes back. I send her on a mission. She totally dies. I'm, like, trying to get out. I don't even know why I didn't save Scum, but, like, I, I just decided to let her die. Mm-hmm. She's dead, and she gets revived by a sectoid. Or not. Oh, my God. So she's a zombie, and she's, like, totally coming after my, I think, a sni- I think a specialist. Like, my specialist was trying to get out, mm-hmm. get get to the drop point. It was very much a get to the chopper, get yeah. to the chopper, like, kind of moment. And my zombified, like, avatar was like, going, <laughs> trying to get her. It was amazing. And so the la- that was did the your, last time I saw... Did your specialist survive? <laughs> yep. Well... She made it out. She got attacked, but she made it out. So my... Uh, so that was the last time I ever saw myself. Yeah, my see, corpse. This is, this, this is why I don't base characters in XCOM 2 off people I know. It was amazing. really distressing. Oh my god, that was one of the greatest things I've seen in a game. So, in any case, so that's XCOM 2, and if you haven't tried it out, you should totally play it. Uh, oh, and they, they patched it, so almost all of the performance problems are fixed now. Yes. It runs super smooth at this point. It's, Great. It is so much, like, it's night and day from the way it was at launch. It was crashing like crazy when I was uh, reviewing it. Well, on launch day, it wasn't crashing for me anymore, but it was, like, really stuttery, and people had problems with it taking long times to load and It didn't help like that. that I had an AMD card, and they had not optimized it for AMD cards. Mm. They had to basically do a day one patch to keep it from crashing every five seconds. Oof. So, yeah, it was kind of the worst. Yeah. I was fortunate enough to not have that particular problem, but still. That's good. But, yeah, yeah, so, XCOM 2, like... It's kind of tangential to RPGs, but it shows how much RPGs and strategy games have in common. Just in, and and that kind of gets back to Paradox wanting to expand out of the grand strategy realm. Yeah. And what's the most natural like category to move into of strategy is uh, like they're, they're branching thing. into the two most natural categories. City Skylines was branching into simulations. Mm-hmm. This tyranny is going to be branching into RPGs. But with maybe kind of a paradox flavor. Yeah. I'm actually really interested in Stellaris. Is that the name of it? Oh, yeah. That looks fun. Yeah, they announced a release date for it today. I think it comes out in May. Ooh. I saw that um, a few months ago. And it looked a lot of, like a lot of fun. Yeah, I remember reading your preview of it. It really does sound like it's Crusader Kings 2 in space. I barely remember it. I do remember that there were scientists. And the scientists were kind of like going around charting things and having special abilities. But like my my own memories of that are... Otherwise, my memories are admittedly kind of fuzzy. But there were so many interesting ideas going on with that game. Yeah, it seems like it's going to be really cool. And also, if it's anything... Like if it's even half as crazy awesome narratively as Crusader Kings 2 is, like in an emergent narrative sort of way, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a really cool game. What was so, so amazingly awesome in an emergent na- narrative kind of way? Uh, so, well, I mean, Crusader like, because Crusader Kings 2 is about 
you play a dynasty essentially, and I'm just a single character. And the entire game is based around like carefully manipulating the lines of secession of various countries so that you control as much of old world Europe as possible. So you get these crazy stories like, well, I had a bastard son with the Queen of France, and so I tried to kill her so that he could take the throne. But then my daughter rebelled against me and deposed me, so I went into exile in Ireland. And <laughs> Like, you get these weird stories. And also, if you've never read um, Crusader Kings 2 patch notes or, like, just the titles of threads on the Steam forum for it, I highly recommend you do so. Because it's great stuff like, how do I murder the Pope? <laughs> um, like... My bastard daughter wants to marry a horse. Like, things like that. It's, <laughs> there's some really insane stuff. Okay. I kind of got to check this game out now. Crusade, it is almost impenetrable. It's, like, one of the games that I would say... Like, actually watching an archived Twitch stream of it, like, somebody playing it for, like, a couple of hours is the best way to learn how to play it, which is a really weird thing to recommend. Well, that's a lot of games these days. But... Yeah, I mean, like, you can either bumble your way through the first couple of games, or you can kind of just watch somebody else play it and kind of learn I mean, how that's goes, how we used to learn how to play games. We didn't have these Twitch streams and Let's Plays, Rabble Rabble. We yeah, you chill have, out on the couch with your buddy. We didn't even have game facts. Like, I would get, in, like, 1995, I would stick a CD into my computer, and it would have a demo for some strategy game. I'd be, like, looking at these menus that made no sense, and I'd be like, eh, I'll just do some things. Oh, I can build a castle. Cool. I think that's basically how I learned how to play Power Monger, which came as part of a, I remember it came as part of a bullfrog collection that I bought just to play Syndicate. Mm. But for whatever reason, I ended up playing a lot of Power Monger, even though it is totally impenetrable, mm. which is, I, still, I think it is the first RTS. I can't remember whether it or Doom 2, or uh, Doom no, 2. No, Doom 2 was the first real RTS. Doom 2 came out before Power Monger? Uh, I don't know. I don't I've know. had this argument possibly with exactly you before, and I can't remember how it I don't it even know what Power Monger is. It was, uh, it's a bullfrog game that is, like, it's ta- it's little tactical maps, and you kind of maneuver your army around, and you conquer okay. castles and stuff. Dune um, 2 is generally acknowledged to be the first true RTS as yeah. we know it. Yeah. Power Monger is a little... I guess it is a little... It's definitely not RTS as we know it, but it is very RTS-y because it's about managing the resources of your army and going around the map to recruit people and, like, collect food and stuff mm. like that. Um, it's really heavily, like, centered in um, the sacking of Rome. Ooh. Like, I think from what I remember is what it's largely themed around or is similar to. Okay. it's pre- It was a pretty cool game. Like, it's worth... It's probably on GOG. Gog. Everything's on Gog. Yeah, I know. You could probably pay it, play it for like three bucks. Exactly. It'd be worth that. Alright, so before we wrap up, let's do one last kind of GDC-related item. Today, Sony announced that the Morpheus will be $399. It's coming out in October. Let's put aside the fact that $399 is probably too expensive and the questions of whether this will actually... Um, accomplish what Sony is hoping it will accomplish. Will VR like make any dent whatsoever on RPGs? No. I mean, come on, that's such, 
That is a super easy question to answer. I mean, like, so... So you're telling me that Skyrim with VR wouldn't be amazing. I, I was actually just going to say, well, like, Obsidian... Or, uh, not Obsidian. Um, Bethesda games, like, third-person kind of action-adventure RPGs could be really cool with a VR headset. Mm. But also, those are the sort of games that you want to kind of sit down and really get into for a long stretch of time, like hours at a time. And, I mean, you were telling me about your headset experience today where it was comfortable, but it wasn't something that you'd want to wear for like a really extended period of time. Well, it's, it, it is very comfortable, but it's weird because it's like this sensory deprivation chamber. Like you put on... You put on the helmet, uh-huh. and then you put on the gog- the headphones, and you don't see anything around you. Like, peripheral vision's totally gone. You're holding, uh, your head, you're, you're like, wearing noise-canceling headphones that are 3D. Yeah. You're in the game, right? And I, I was telling you this, I was playing Job Simulator, and... It's this game where you're, like, in this cartoon world and you're standing in, like, a cubicle, like, behind a desk with a computer and everything. And, like, robots are telling you what to do. And it's kind of cute and funny. And there was a moment where I just instinctively went to lean on the desk and I almost, like, fell over because I fell right through the desk. It was so weird and cool. But the point... But when I took it all off, I was so disoriented. Yeah. And, like... And that's what makes me think stuff like Skyrim... Could be really cool in VR, but would you, like, after the first time you sat there for hours playing it like that, would you ever want to do it again? I have no idea, because when you're doing it in the moment, you're really into it. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's that's the big question, right? Like, would it, would you feel bad enough after, like, <laughs> three hours of being in immersive, in the immersive VR zone? And, like, you come out of it and you feel super disoriented. Would it be compelling enough to be like, yes, I'm going to do that again? Or would you just say, well, that was cool, but maybe next time I'll play it without the headset? So, here are a few observations on the RPG front. Um, Obviously, it's not a great fit for, say, Tyranny. No. it's Well, I mean, it's not a great fit for anything that requires, like... A large amount of third-person UI, I guess is I'd say non-diegetic UI stuff that's heavily systems-driven, heavily stats-driven because that's maybe kind of fundamentally at odds with the VR, which is like you are inside this world. Yeah, well, I mean, like I could see heavily stat-based games working with VR, but it would have to be really constructed around like the idea that you are the operator of a group of people or whatever. Like it could work with a cyberpunk RPG. Mm. Like, in fact, that could be really cool if somebody did it. But so you're almost kind of limited to first person. I would say that for right now, unless you're really designing a very specific type of experience, it would it's pretty much limited to third to first person. Okay. So, but on the other hand, maybe this would encourage developers to kind of play around with the form and try new and interesting things because of all of the genres right now, like RPGs are very much still like 
here are the conventions of the genre. I mean, you see, like, them play around within those conventions. Like, Persona 5 does a lot of really cool things, but at the end of the day, it's still very much in the conventions. It's still a JRPG. Yes. Yeah. And actually, I'm thinking, and I'm... Maybe that'll end up being the really big benefit of VR is... Like, games are going to have to both work with it and work without it. Like, it's just... The reality of it is, for a very long time, if ever, it's not going to have the market penetration where you could release a game that is just a VR game. But maybe it'll get developers to start thinking about other ways to present games or ways to use the immersive aspect of VR as like a different sort of framing device. Like That could work really well for certain types of RPGs. Mm. I don't know if it would necessarily cause a revolution in the mechanics or anything because VR isn't really unless you're doing like a flight simulator or something it's not really a mechanical expression it's like uh, it's so it's more like a it's like a framing device it's an experiential thing mm-hmm. and that's probably where it'll have the most impact on RPGs if it has any at all is like helping people come up with new way, new framing devices and new ways to set up the experiential content of now I am playing an RPG. Although the games themselves will probably remain fairly similar. Although I like you I hope just weird. as much as you do that there's going to be a revolution in the kinds of mechanics and themes that we see in RPGs. Like I would I would love to see an entirely new sort of subgenre spring up, kind of like Morrowind created and then Oblivion sort of semi-perfected and then Skyrim kind of like got just right. Even though it's not my thing, like that's that was a unique and cool thing to come into existence. You know it'd be weird? Walking around, walking along down a hallway and then you encounter uh, a character and a conversation starts and suddenly a like dialogue box pops up in front of you with a bunch of different choices. Oh my god, that would be the worst in VR. Because you can't really the talk. Worst. Yeah, you can't. And I you, maybe that will end up actually being the biggest barrier to using using VR with RPGs is that there's like not really a good way to to do menu-driven interactions with VR. Like it all has to be diegetic stuff. It has to be experiential. Hmm. That's why it works so well for cockpit games. That's what I've been saying from the start. It's so the kind of thing where you would build, say, let's say you're a car enthusiast. You buy the nice expensive wheel with the pedals and then you buy a VR headset. And it's like, oh my God, it's like I'm actually driving this car and I'm like looking around and I'm looking out the window. Oh my God, there's like my buddy, you know? Yeah, and I mean, like, that's at trade shows and stuff. Those have always been the coolest demos that they're able to do. Yeah. We're going to put you behind this sweet-ass rig that we've set up specifically to simulate the experience as much as possible, and we're going to put an Oculus Rift on you so you can see how awesome it is. Exactly. Um, Or, like, there are Reddit threads occasionally where people are like, look at this crazy, authentic cockpit that I built in my garage. Yeah, and now I'm going who, to pretend to fly a Dreamliner. <laughs> yeah, the people who build, like, 747 replica cockpits in their garage or whatever, 
Like those those people are the audience for Oculus, like ultimately. Like Sony's thing, I know you said we couldn't talk about the price point, but whatever. I don't care. It's the most it's the most consumer oriented price point, which god man, what a gross thing to say. At four hundred dollars, it's consumer oriented. It's the cheapest of all available options. And it plugs into a thing without you having to upgrade it, aside from the camera. I I don't know. VR it's a cool thing, but it, if we're going to talk about whether or not it's viable at the end of the day, we're talking about a thing that's more expensive than a current console. Yeah, I mean, like, the killer apps for it really are simulation stuff. Like, if there was a... If Sony were to come out at E3 and say, by the way, when No Man's Sky launches in a couple of months, it's going to have VR support, that's, like, the killer app. And it, I mean, a bunch of people are excited for Res. And Res is very cool. Nobody understands how No Man's Sky is supposed to like work. Yeah, I know. <laughs> no Man's like, Sky is like can a weird really, black box. They just had a giant event for it, and people still came out of good going, uh... They're selling it it's really, really hard. It's really cool. They're selling it really hard. I imagine it is really cool. Like, I've seen the, lo- the trailers for it and stuff when it went up for pre-order. It looks like it'll... It definitely looks like it'll be an interesting thing. I still don't really know what it is. <laughs> Nobody does. You fly around in a spaceship or something. If I'm flying around in a spaceship and I go to like an ice planet and there's a brontosaurus and I get to name it, I don't know, maybe that's what I want to do for like five or six hours a week. Maybe I'd even wear a VR headset to do it. I don't know. I I, I think it gets back to the old problem of maybe people don't want to put on this sensory deprivation device and go completely into this world at the exclusion of everything else. Well, so that was what interested me as soon as you said, like, you put on the noise-canceling headphones and it's like you're in total isolation, is mm-hmm. that at the press conference today, Sony made a really big deal about, like, well, you're on the couch wearing this thing, but it's not like you're ignoring everyone else in the room because they do the simulcast thing, it sounds like, where it's on the TV and the headset at the same time. Yeah, they do. So you so can watch. Right. So it's like, oh, man, but the other people in the room can still watch. And you can still be hanging out with them and having a good time. But if you've got noise-canceling 3D headphones on, like... No, it's not the kind of thing you're doing in a social context. Right, exactly. Well, I mean, also, it's not even... It doesn't even sound like it's the kind of thing that you're doing where you're hanging out with your significant other on the couch and you're like, hey... You want to watch me play a video game for a while? No, no. Like, you can't You can't do that with VR. Like, and, and it's... It's a fundamental problem that they're still trying to solve, yeah. It's, it's the, the kind fundamental of thing... problem that I don't think they can solve. Like, it's a technology for bachelors in their 20s who don't yes. have a roommate. Exactly. Or have a roommate and they lock themselves in their room for... Yeah, or, a they have a, or they have a spare room that can be devoted to, like, being the VR room. But the the momentum of the VR industrial complex continues, and the self-perpetuating hype will go on until uh, eventually it becomes clear that it is not actually going to be a mainstream thing. But, but... The as, hype will continue until morale improves. <laughs> but there will be commercial stuff. So I don't have... Uh, it'll, there'll be commercial applications for sure. Like a wide oh, yeah. range of commercial I've, applications. I've talked with people who um, who work in like physics labs and who do like industrial design and stuff who are really excited for VR. Oh, absolutely. Like they think it's going to be so awesome for them. And they're totally right. It's just not 
like as a consumer technology where I plug it into my PlayStation and I play a game for like six hours, questionable. Questionable, yeah. Uh, so, so I can't, I don't really have any uh, any other like podcast to talk about this. So I'll yeah. just do it on this podcast really quickly. So this is what I think is going to happen. Okay. I think that Morpheus is going to come out. I keep calling it Morpheus. PlayStation VR is going to come out in the fall. And it's going to get a lot of hype. And it's going to be kind of like the holiday hotness. And I think it will actually do pretty well initially. And Sony's strategy of dramatically undercutting Oculus and leveraging their install base will initially be successful. And they will be touting all of these numbers as hardcore people buy this thing and spend like hundreds of dollars on PlayStation VR. And mm-hmm. I think even the support will be decent. Yeah. Then I, but I don't think it's ever going to get the kind of mainstream penetration that Sony is hoping for because it's just too expensive. Because the it's... 10 million or more bros who bought a PlayStation 4 for FIFA won't buy it. Yeah. And the hobbyists will become annoyed because Oculus and HTC Vive will outpace it in relatively short order. And at some point, PlayStation VR won't be able to keep up and it will become, like, just not good enough. Yeah, so, like, it seems that this is... Like, Sony is really banking on being first to market, essentially. Not just first to market in terms of we're making the first consumer release. Because I think October... They said it's October of this year. Has Oculus announced like a public release date of like when the consumer yeah like, are coming out? It's not actually going to be uh, like Oculus is coming out in a couple months. Really, it's coming out really soon. Oh wow! And the Vive is already out, or I'm not entirely sure. It's pre-orders. Soon? I think it's but pre-orders. I, Oculus is going to be out in like May. Okay. Yeah, but it's also Oculus is also six hundred, right? Something like that. Oculus yeah. is six hundred. Vive is eight hundred. PlayStation VR is $399 plus a camera plus your move controllers. Yes. Um, Sony is really banking on you don't, it's for a piece of hardware you already own and it's cheap enough, right? And biggest install base. Yeah. And they've got a really big install base. It's not intimidating. Like if they've got a Call of Duty title around the same time or like between October and Christmas. If there's a Call of Duty title that supports PlayStation VR, that would be, like... It would actually be really... kind of badass on Call of Duty, I'm not going to lie. I'm No, it would be super cool, which is probably why they want exactly that. Like, that would be a thing that would sell it to all those bros. Oh my god, have they announced the new Call of Duty? I never pay attention to that. I don't, kind of I don't know if they have or not, I don't think they have. They might be sitting on until E3, it might just be like, we're doing a special edition of... Oh, Whatever Call of Duty for PlayStation They're totally doing that. You're calling it right there. Oh my god! If gosh. I'm right, then that would be hilarious because I'm just totally spitballing here. But no, no I mean, mean it makes too much sense. No, it makes perfect sense because that's the install base you want to reach is the bros who buy Call of Duty. But that's a lot of money. It's a ton of money. I mean, could maybe if you like packaged it. Like you bundled it, you did a Call of Duty bundle with your piece, your oh PlayStation. My God. I was VR. already talking with a friend about like, yeah, if Sony does a Christmas bundle that's like PS4 and VR and camera and a move controller and like maybe a game, and they sell it for like eight hundred or eight hundred and fifty bucks, 
they'd still take a loss on the hardware, but they'd probably move a crapload of VR units doing that. Maybe. If it if it's I think um, they are underestimating how much money that actually is. No, it's, a, it's when, a lot of money. Trust remember, me, I'm aware of the fact that $850 is a lot of money. The play, People went bananas because the PlayStation 3 was 600 Yeah, I know. And this isn't even a console. It's, it's a peripheral. It's a 32X. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, hopefully it'll be a better. A much better 32X. Hopefully it'll be better than the 32X. I mean, the 32X was a poorly supported piece of garbage that was out of, that was stopped being supported after a year. Yeah. But, no, like, if he, if they manage to do a box that all of this stuff that you need for VR, plus it's a Call of Duty game in the box, like, that would be crazy. Yeah. But... Here's the fundamental problem. How do you demo that to the bros? See, that's the thing. And we talked about this too. Is like, so trade shows are the perfect environment for stuff like VR because it's, you get in a line and you get to have like the most perfect possible experience. At the end of it, you get to try out all of them and then decide which one you think is the best, if any of them. For most people, it's going to be, oh man, I would like to try that Sony VR thing or that PlayStation VR thing. I go to the GameStop and I put it on for like, 10 or maybe 15 minutes and I check it out and it's like either this is cool enough that I'm going to drop $400 on it or it's not. And like that's a really hard sell. Uh, $400 but on the other hand it is pretty impactful in those few minutes. I'm, I'm not going to lie. It's yeah, pretty I impactful. I haven't tried it myself and I imagine that the lines are going to be hideous. Probably. So I'm, I don't think I'm going to get to try it. But I don't know. I mean, Sony's putting on enough of a push. So I'm betting that they'll have all. You you'll probably that, be able to try you think it that out. They'll have enough demo units hanging around that. Yeah, just go to their booth. They'll probably have it around. Yeah, I'll go to their booth. Last year at their booth, like there were actually some pretty bad lines, but I also don't think they were anticipating the line that they had for Bloodborne last year. Mm. It was really weird. It was the longest line I saw at GDC was to play Blood- Bloodborne, a game that was coming out like two months later. <laughs> Did Bloodborne... I thought Bloodborne came, came, was Bloodborne already out by out. GDC. No, it came out... No, no, it, it did come out, out not long after that. It came out like a month after. That was the longest line at Sony's booth was to play a game that was coming out a month later. Uh, um, but, yeah, it, if they actually, like, set everything up and they have enough demo units and stuff, maybe I'll get a chance to try it, but... I'll say this. It's relatively comfortable. That was what surprised me, because I've done... Ocu- I've tried out Oculus before, and... Um, I think it was one of the earlier revisions of it where they were still kind of like working out some of the weight issues that it would have where like it kind of dragged down on your face a bit. Mm. But it was heavy and it was super uncomfortable to wear for like more than, I think I played what I was playing for maybe 15 or 20 minutes. Like towards the end of that, it started getting really uncomfortable. They didn't have Ace Combat at that demo event I was at. Oh, Ace Combat would be really good, too. Because they announced an Ace Combat for it. Really? Yeah, last year. Oh. And yeah. it was going to be for PlayStation VR, and it's exciting. And it just occurred to me that it wasn't at that event. Interesting. That's disappointing. Well, you, did, you did say that they're going to, that they're saying 50 titles at launch. Is something that like that. To support, something like that. They, I think they said that they were tracking 50 titles. Yeah. Uh, that could be in the launch window between October and the end of the year. Oh, in the launch window between October and the end of the year. Okay, yeah. yeah. That's that's way more reasonable than, like, it comes out in October and there's 50 games. You can play with it. No. And, and it seems like a lot of games are just going to be like, and we also have PSVR support. And the way it's going to work is that 
Instead of using the right analog stick to look around, you'll use your head. Yeah. Which, okay, that'll be cool. And they'll put out development tools that will make it, like, work. And you'll just play with your DualShock 4. Yeah, so that's the thing that that I think is probably going to end up being what most of the Sony... I'm not buying two PlayStation moves for this thing. Are you kidding me? PlayStation VR is going to be is like, yeah, we're just going to make it easy so that if, like, you've got a... We just basically say, yes, wherever your camera is mounted inside the game engine, like, it just that's just the player's head inside the VR headset. And here's the tools for you to do that mapping in your game. I was talking to a Sony rep, and I'm like... (laughs) I'm not getting two PlayStation moves for this thing. And he was like, he just shrugged and goes, oh, go on Amazon. Buy them. (laughs) (laughs) Buy them right now. Amazon is very optimistic. You can go on eBay and buy them. I'm sure you can find them on Amazon right now. No, actually, so I did, I did check Amazon like right after I said, people started talking about like the camera isn't bundled with it. Does it require the camera? Um, Currently, if you're thinking about maybe in October getting yourself a sweet PlayStation VR, if you're an Amazon Prime member, the PlayStation 4 camera is like 25% off right now, which Ooh. is a whole 15 bucks off. Which I am. So. Well, there you go. $45 for the peripheral for your peripheral. My God. But I will say this. PlayStation Move 1. You think so? Well, yeah, because it's going to be usable with the... It's actually still being used. It outlasted the Kinect. Outlasted the Kinect, and it outlasted the Wiimote. Oh my god, Sony won! No, they no, that's it. not true. I have a Wii remote sitting right next to me right oh, now. Oh, that's true, you do. I'm wave- I'm literally waving it right now. Can you confirm this? I can, in fact, confirm it. It's gold. I assume it was part of some sort of Zelda thing. It's the Skyward Sword Wii remote. Yeah, I actually just saw the uh, little Zelda thing. With there. the... Um, the Wii Motion Plus. Yep. And you know why I was using this remote? Because I was doing my Punch-Out! One-Hit Wonders run the other day. Oh. With it. Yeah. It's still great as an NES controller. Yeah, those things actually do make really They nice actually NES make controls. excellent NES controllers. So the Wii Remote's still decent for that. But no, the PlayStation Move ultimately did beat the Kinect. Thank you, PlayStation VR! We finally found an application for the Move! <laughs> Well, people were finding that application for the move, like, as soon as it came out is the really funny thing. <laughs> like, they were already using it for, like, motion, like, head tracking stuff. Oh, yeah. Because there was that thing where people were, like, taping them to their heads or whatever and using that as, like, the motion tracking thing for certain types of of, um, mm. of stuff. Like, people were doing that with Wii remotes, too, like, right away. And... Technology is weird. Technology is weird. Why do we do this? Like, why do you open why the battery we... case on your Wii remote, or...? <laughs> I'm taking out the batteries because I don't want them to die. Um, why do we stick Wii remotes on our heads? Or why do we stick PlayStation moves on our heads? Or... Innate human curiosity. <laughs> is it just that we want, like, higher... Why do we want this, like, higher, like, immersion... Why do we have to be inside this thing? Because, yeah, you know what? That's a really good question. That's like, that is a philosophical question on a level that I don't know if I can really answer that. We because, just have like, this drive to, like, push further and further and further and make it more and more real. But at the same time, you know what? I'm playing a ton of Stardew Valley right now, which could have been on the play- Super Nintendo. Yeah. I mean, I don't think the PlayStation VR is going to enhance that. It's really not. 
And that's, you know, that's another thing about why VR, like, isn't exciting to me personally is the games that would be the coolest experiences in VR are not the sort of games that I like to play. I think going even further than that, I think if, like, if you won't look at HTC Vive and Oculus Rift, they're dependent on this notion of having a super high quality PC. The desktop, the gaming desktop is almost a dinosaur. Yeah. I mean, hobbyists absolutely have one i have one right now yeah but well i mean like i bought the lowest end possible graphics card that was still like relatively recent I mean, it was like a 100 bucks or something when i did a build for my media pc that's in the living room and it's like it runs fairly modern games at somewhere between medium and high settings and that's perfectly fine for me and that's fine for most people they don't but if you're building like a hardcore gaming rig to have the ultra max settings on every single game. Like that's the only thing that will run a Vive or an Oculus basically. Yeah. And a lot of people, let's be honest, like some of my best friends who are very, uh, very dedicated gamers still, they have a laptop like, and they play stuff on steam, like random indies on steam. Yeah, well, I mean, like, that's what I spend most of my PC time doing is, like, the most graphically intensive game that I played recently was XCOM 2, which, I mean, it looks awesome. It's an Unreal Engine 4 game, but it's not like it taxed that video card sitting in my tiny little case all that much. So in that regard, VR just seems fundamentally counter to, like, recent trends in video games. I mean... Well, to recent trends in PC games. Which is one, but the... But we were just talking about Tyranny and I Am Setsuna, two games that are designed explicitly to be throwbacks. This is a very good point. But also we're on a podcast, which is an RPG podcast, and like it or not, RPGs are sort of a throwback genre at this point. Ish. I mean, they're still one of the most well, important. yeah, I mean, like, yeah. Look at Skyrim. Sky- I was just about to say, like, you do have the blockbuster ones like Skyrim and Fallout 4 and stuff. And what game got more reaction out of people than Final Fantasy VII? And yes, that is a throwback game, but it inspires such intense feelings from people. I can't wait to play the Final Fantasy VII re-release in my PlayStation VR. Oh my god. (laughs) Doesn't that sound like a terrifying nightmare? It would be... I don't... It's a third person, so I don't know if it would necessarily work. Think about how sick those cinematics would look. The future is here. It really is. All right. So bright, you've got to wear a VR headset. All right, and on that note, I think we've hit the end of our episode, and I think we're just going to make this a full-on GDC, like, VR wankery episode. So we're going to hold our interviews for next week. Yeah, I wish that I had uh, more cool stuff to talk about, but... Ah, no, well, we will um, at some point. Ask, ask me on Friday, and I'll, like, tell you all of the cool things at the show that you missed because you were busy looking at VR headsets. Oh, God. Well, we'll have you back on pretty soon to talk about, to do our boss fight, our RPG boss fights episode. Oh, man, awesome. I would love to be here on that. Is it because I told you that Zio is the only boss fight that matters? Yes. Okay. That's exactly why. <laughs> Great. I will strongly advocate for Fantasy Star 4's boss fights over Final Fantasy VI's boss fights. Lovely. And of course, we can find you on Twitter at a tweeting twit. Yes. 
where you will undoubtedly have lots of interesting observations on VR and RPGs and game design, or maybe not on VR. Maybe no, mostly shrug. all I do on that Twitter account is I complain about my job, and uh, sometimes I also talk about video games. Excellent. Well, I like video games, too. So it's I cool. love video games. They're so great. <laughs> and you can also find me at the underscore catbot, where you can see me complaining about my hockey team, which literally... Uh, mm. Today was winning two to one tonight, and then in the final seven seconds gave up the equalizer and then lost in overtime. So that was a thing. That what happened. is it with Minnesota sports teams like <laughs> snatching defeat from the jaws of victory? Because this is like the third or fourth time, like in the last couple of seasons, of basically any sport that I can think of where the team that you root for has gone from like about to win to crushing loss. Yeah, well, that's just kind of my life. It's my lot in life, Steve. It's going to be how it is. It's how I'm going to die. You, you could you could support teams that are not from Minnesota. You have that option. I do. I support the San Jose Earthquakes, and they're just as bad. <laughs> <laughs> they're okay. a soccer team. They Yeah. In any case. Uh, so, yeah, you can listen to me. You can watch me complain about those or talk about video games, whatever. Um. If you want to support Acts of the Blood God, can I recommend that you subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review? And also go on uh, Stitcher and other places where our, our RPG podcasts, but also other art podcasts can be found. Yeah. Um, and just spread the word. It'd be wonderful. Yeah. Tell your friends. Leave a nice rating and review on iTunes telling everyone how great it is. Exactly. That'd be terrific. You you can also leave a review that's bad, but maybe don't. Um, as for stuff that's going on the site right now, um, I just reviewed Pokken Tournament. Oh yeah, I didn't get a chance to read that review. Uh, is it good? I was pretty harsh on it. Uh, In sad. a nutshell, I, I like the game mostly, but the single player is actually very thin. Which wouldn't be a problem, except that I think the competitive game, um, I think, I, I, I think that the competitive game is a bit flawed because mm. I think at the lower levels, projectile spam is a big deal. Also, it doesn't have any fight type Pokemon in it. Oh I, no, it does. It has oh, it Machamp. does. Oh, okay. And Blaziken. I I miss. I heard incorrectly again then because there were people complaining how it didn't have those. Not enough. Oh, not enough of them. Okay. It just doesn't have enough Pokemon. Okay, like so it has like fourteen monsters out of the gate. Yeah. Which is about as many as Street Fighter Five, maybe a couple less. Yeah. But when you put it in the light of there's like seven hundred monsters out there, that's not enough because you're just leaving out too many favorites, and then you have stuff like. Why is Chandelure in here? Chandelure is this, like, ghost, like, this very random ghost. I mean, it's cute. It's I've, interesting. I've never even heard of that one. I exactly. Mean, like, my familiarity with Pokemon is passing at best. But you would think that if you're going to pull 14 Pokemon out of there, you got to get your... It's all the hits, right? Right. I mean, where's Blastoise? Wait, there's no Blastoise? Exactly. Where's Greninja? I don't Ninja, know what that one is. That's but... the new one. That's oh, okay. one of the new ones. But he's popular. He's in Smash Brothers Brawl, actually. Hmm. Uh, like, and he's like a ninja, and so you could like that's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, like the name indicates none that. of the Eevees are in there. Like, what? 
Exactly. You, can't, you made a Pokemon fighting game without an Eevee in there, but we have two Pikachus. Oh, no. Granted, oh. one of them is dressed up as a Mexican wrestler, Pikachu Libre. So why isn't that just an alternate costume on regular Pikachu? Uh, because they don't ask questions. Does Pikachu Libre, like, have, like, an, an awesome moonsault or something? Like, I guess actually totally different moveset. Yeah, okay. Uh, Pikachu Libre is more grappling focused ish, and Pikachu Prime, <laughs> Pikachu Prime is more like distance focused and does the usual stuff like using thunder and that kind of thing. Projectile spam. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Wait, I, mean, I thought this podcast was over. Why are we talking about Poke Tournament? <laughs> go read Cat's review. Yeah, go read my review. I'm looking forward to the sequel. Have they announced that there's going to be one? No, but I kind of hope there will be. Mm. In any case. So, well, my review is not going to help that cause, will it? Not if you said it was bad. I did give it a three out of five. Oh, that's not bad. That's average. Uh, Metacritic terms, that's like a 60. Yeah, well, Metacritic can go and... I'm not not going to say bad words on this podcast because it's for families. Metacritic can blow it out of its ass. I was going to say something different, but okay. (laughs) And with that, I've been Cat Bailey. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Next week, we will have interviews with the developers of Tyranny and I Am Setsuna, so we'll just continue on this particular track. And we've got a lot of awesome, interesting news coming up, so we're going to have plenty to talk about on the podcast. Next thing you know, it's going to be E3, and I'm going to want to kill myself. Yeah, I'm not going to E3. You could do that one yourself. All right, well... But we'll have Jeremy, so it'll be okay. But I've been Cat Bailey. Steve, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, it's great. Thanks for having me. We did me. this live. Yeah, I know. Thanks for having me over at your house. It's really cool, and I like your cat. F it. We'll do it live. And other 10-year-old memes. Oh, man. Is that really 10 years old? It's it at least It's is. at least eight. I think it started in 2008. Oh, man. That's like 50 years in internet years. I feel really old now. We've got to end the podcast before I feel even older. Happy adventuring, everyone. Bye. (laughs) 